Okay, this morning's lesson is, is we're going to be studying about the resurrection of Jesus since it's Easter. And I wanted to start off with what Jesus said about the resurrection. So let's open our Bibles, or you can just listen. Uh, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 2. John chapter 2, of course, is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is, I'm going to read from the passage right after the miracle of turning the water into wine at Cana. Start reading in chapter 2 and verse 12. I'll be reading verses 12 to 22. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. Then they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew now, Matthew chapter 12. So I want to look at several passages where Jesus talks about the resurrection during his ministry in advance. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. I I go here all the time. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So here, obviously Jesus is referring to that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which would be, we know from Acts chapter 2, that's Hades where his his spirit went in the heart of the earth uh, before he would be raised up. The story of Jonah is 
it, it, while it's a true story, it's also there's an allegorical level that it's foreshadowing what would happen to the Messiah, that the Christ would be would be vomited out of the depths of, of Hades after after three after days. Three days of being in there. That's right. That's right. Amen, Adam. Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus talked quite a bit about the resurrection, even though the apostles didn't get it until after the fact. Matthew chapter 16. In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And now, Matthew chapter 20. In verse 17, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So, just putting the pieces together. Jesus taught before the fact, he taught his disciples in several different ways that he would be betrayed and killed and then raised up on the third day. He said that his resurrection would be the sign of his authority to clear the temple it would be the sign that was given to the generation that he was who he said he was. This would be the one clear sign. This from Matthew chapter 12. He said that this generation will only receive one sign. That's it. It's the sign of the resurrection on the third day. And surprisingly, his disciples were completely thrown off by the fact that Jesus was betrayed and crucified. They were discouraged. They were scattered. Uh, Peter denied that he ever knew him when these things took place. The the other one that betrayed him killed himself. That's right. Judas, Judas killed himself, betrayed him and killed himself. And then even after Jesus is raised from the dead. Thomas doesn't believe it. That's right. Thomas doesn't believe it. The other apostles are skeptical. So even though Jesus told them all these things beforehand, they had a hard time believing it even after it happened and while it was going on. Let's turn to Acts chapter 17. So these are all the Jews who have the scriptures. This is the significance of the resurrection to the Jews. I want to explain to you the significance of the resurrection also for the Gentiles, since I think think all of us are Gentiles here. In Acts chapter 17, 
In Acts chapter 17, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He's traveling, he's gone into Europe, into what's Greece today, Thessalonica, Berea, and he goes down to Athens, the great city in the uh, in, uh, southern part of Greece. I'm going to start reading in verse 16 in Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be proclaiming a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time doing nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life and breath to all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring also. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by the art of man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by rising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So verse 31, he says he's given assurance of this, meaning that God will call the entire world into, judge, into judgment by one man. He's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of the dead is not only to convince the Jews, but it's also to convince the philosophers in Athens, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, that to convince all people everywhere that that is the sign that we're given. The, uh, yeah, 
you know, some of us here are in the construction business one way or the other. You know, Chris is a, Chris is a contractor, and Will and I are, are engineers. We're dealing with construction. And uh, you know in construction, the most important part of the building is the foundation because once the foundation is set, everything else uh, rides on that, and the foundation has to carry the weight of the entire building. So uh, if, you, if you make a problem with a window, you can take the window out and put a new window in. If you have a problem with the foundation, you've got big problems on your hands. See, this is it's major surgery. So foundation of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. When I am reaching out to people and I have no idea what their religious background is, one way that I will often do it is I will say, do you consider yourself to be a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? And a lot of people around here in Boston will say yes. And then I'll follow, my follow-up will question a lot of times will be, well, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus on the third day? And, and generally they'll say, well, yeah, I said I was a Christian. Of course I believe in the resurrection. And I'll say, well, let me ask you a further question. Let me just clarify exactly what I mean by that. I mean, do you believe that Jesus was killed, his body was put in a tomb, and on the third day he was bodily resurrected? He physically came out of the tomb. And it's surprising to me how many times people will choke when I ask the question in those terms, because I think I'm asking the same question two different ways. But they say, well, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about that. Do I have to believe that to be a Christian? I mean, I believe he rose on, on, on the third day metaphorically or spiritually or in some sense, but to mean that his body, his spirit came back into his body, he came physically out of the grave, he ate fish. He people could could stick their finger into his side in the holes of his hand. I said that's what I'm talking about: bodily resurrection from the dead, and that slows people down. I want to know when somebody says they believe in the resurrection, do they mean the resurrection like it talks about in the Bible? Because this is the foundation of the Christian faith: the resurrection of Jesus as historical fact. And as I, I like to ask a lot of questions when I'm reaching out to people to find out what people believe, what they don't believe, and also to find out how they think. Because I realize I'm an engineer, I think a certain way, and I realize over time, more and more so, not everyone thinks the same way that I do. One of the things that, that I, I will, I'll tend to think... Uh, to me, it will be completely intuitively obvious, either Jesus physically rose from the dead or he didn't rise from the dead. And those are the only two options. To me, that's completely obvious. But, that, but now I realize that's not obvious to everybody, and particularly talking to my two children who are in their 20s, and my son Will is still in college right now, and they explained to me that to a lot of their peers, that's not always intuitively obvious. So while it may be, that may be clear to everybody in the room here, as you're talking with other people, just be aware that not everyone thinks that way. Not everyone thinks that truth is something that's it's either, it's either true or it's not true. That some, somehow people believe that there's a third possibility. 
uh, out there. Um, many years ago, um, I, I was uh, I was influenced by a an economics writer named Henry Hazlitt because the thing I really liked about Henry Hazlitt is he was such he takes something like economics, which is murky to most people. And he made it so clear and so simple and so logical. And he was such a clear writer. And he, he uh, I never read anyone who was as clear and compelling. And I thought to myself in reading, wow, I'd like to be able to explain things as clearly and logically as he does so that anyone can understand it and get a deep understanding of what he's talking about. There was a book that he read as a young man that he said had a big influence on him. It was called Elementary Lessons in Logic, and it helped him to clarify his own thinking process. Now, this book was written around the year 1900, but I figured, why should that stop me? And this day, I can read anything you want. So I dug up Elementary Lessons on Logic, the book that that influenced him. And one of the chapters in the book, I'm just going to, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but I just want to touch on this because I think it's, it's, it's important to, to get. This is one of the chapters in the book. It has, the title is The Laws of Thought. And he says, the laws of thought, he says, uh, the, the author says, I want to give very ten- careful attention to the very simple laws of thought on which all reasoning must ultimately depend. The laws describe the very simplest truths which all people must agree to and which at the same time apply to all notions of which we can conceive. It's impossible to think correctly and avoid evident self-contradiction unless we observe what are called the three primary laws of thought. And, and, and then after he gives the three laws of thought, he apologizes for himself. He says, you know, he says, these laws were ridiculed by John Locke, the great philosopher. He said, these things are so obvious that you shouldn't even have to state them in the first place. But he says, the author says, but I found that students are seldom able to see at first the full meaning and importance of these laws. But he says, if, if you don't get these three laws, it's impossible to think logically and clearly. And these are universal all times, all places. So I'm going to give you the three laws here. Law number one, you're going to laugh at this one. Whatever is, is. Okay, Allison's going to love that. That's uh, what, Whatever is, is, is the first law. It's called the law of identity, meaning everything is identical with itself, which may seem intuitively obvious. So it gets a little harder after that. The second law is the law of contradiction. Nothing can both be and not be at the same time in the same sense. Okay, that's the second, the second law. A door can be open or closed, but at any one point in time, either the door is open or the door is closed. Nothing can both be and not be at the same time in the same sense. That's the second one. Now, the third one gets a little, little, it's, it's building, we're building, it's one step at a time. This is the third step is the law of the excluded middle. Now, there are only three laws, so you, you master, he says, you master these things and you put these into practice, you're going to be a clear thinker. The law of the, the, the second law was nothing can both be and not be. The third law is the law of the excluded middle was everything must either be or not be. 
Let me give you an example. Either something is a door or it's not a door. Either today is Sunday or it's not Sunday. Everything must either be or not be. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you a curveball here. Let's say you have in the room here, there's someone who came from Alaska and someone who came from Jamaica. And I say, ask the question, is it, do you think it's warm out? Is it warm outside today? What would the guy from Alaska say? It's really cold out there. Well, so the guy from Alaska is used to it being really cold. So if he goes outside, he's going to say, wow, it's a warm day today. Yeah. The guy from Jamaica... He's going to say, like, it's really hot out there. The guy from Jamaica... <laughs> in Jamaica, he would say it's really hot out there. But in Woburn, if he went out today, he would say, it's really cold out here. So... You say, wait a minute, doesn't that just prove the truth is relative? To one guy it seems hot, to the other guy it seems cold. Is it hot or is it cold? It can't be both. We're just violating all the laws you just laid out here. (laughs) The problem is that I didn't define the terms clearly. Warm is an incredibly vague term. Now, if I want to define warm as saying, okay, I'm going to define warm as between 65 degrees and 80 degrees. That's warm. Below 65 is cool. Over 80 is hot. So that's the definition. And if I then said it's either warm or it's not warm, now that you've defined the term, it's clear that either happened, either that's the case or it's not. So you say, well, if that's the definition of warm, it's not warm today. And it doesn't matter if you're from Alaska, If you're from Jamaica or if you're from the moon, it is not warm today in Woburn, Massachusetts. It could be warm tomorrow, but it's not warm today. So that's the law of the excluded middle. Everything either must be or must not be. Now, in in everyday life, everyone takes these things for granted. You don't have to think about these things. If somebody didn't act like this, you'd think that they they were foolish. Maybe a little child would, 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 act, would act like these are things we assume in everyday life. But the problem comes that when you, once you get to religion or morals or ethics, all of a sudden people take these laws and throw them out the window and everything is relative. So that's the, the, the moral relativism is in moral areas there is no objective truth. But you take these principles and these principles are universally true for all things, for all time. Whatever is, is. Nothing can both be and not be, and everything must either be or not be. These are universal principles on which all logic and reason are based. So let's take a look with that in mind at the resurrection. Either Jesus bodily rose from the dead, or he didn't rise from the dead. There is no middle option. There's no third possibility. It either it happened or it didn't. And it doesn't matter whether the person asking that question is sitting in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City or if they're walking around the Kaaba in Mecca in a pilgrimage with a million Muslims. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. There's no third possibility. And it has nothing to do with whether I happen to believe it or not. It happened or it didn't. This is just basic, applying the basic rules of logic 
to the spiritual realm. Does everyone follow what I'm saying here? So if somebody doesn't believe that that something either everything either is or isn't, it's going to be very hard to have any kind of a rational discussion. It's like trying to build a building with jello or with, with silly putty. So you can't say, well, he rose from the dead for you and the people of, of, of Ireland and Poland, but he didn't rise from the dead for the people who are from, uh, from Africa or from Saudi Arabia. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. There's no, you can't say it's your truth. So with that, with that background in mind, let's turn to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, because I think Paul understood these timeless principles of truth. First Corinthians 15, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. So Paul's writing this to Christians in Corinth. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you received, which you also received, and which you stand, by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as to one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not, without, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith also is empty. Yes, and we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead don't rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I appreciate the way Paul uses logic and reason to lay out the case some people are questioning the idea that the dead are raised. And he's, he goes back to first principles. He goes back to the foundation. He says, I want to remind you of the first things which I received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That means in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, according to the fulfillment of prophecies, 
And he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500. And then he says, by James, and he says, uh, finally, he was seen by, by, by uh, myself, by himself also. And Paul goes through logically. He's saying, look, if, if Christ is raised from the dead, then God has the power to raise the dead. The dead are raised. If the dead are not raised, then Christ wasn't raised either. That's logical. He says, if Christ wasn't raised, we are still in our sins. Your faith is empty. And he says of himself, we are false witnesses about God. We're liars. He says, I said, I saw him. Peter saw him. All these people were all liars. We're all false witnesses if this didn't happen. So Paul doesn't believe. He said either it happened or it didn't happen. If it did happen, then God raises the dead. If it didn't happen, we're all liars. Those are the only two possibilities here. And Paul says he saw him, and he came from a long way. He was like Solomon, pretty keen to Christians. Right. And then was Jesus that helped him out. That's right. That's right. Paul, Paul saw him himself, and he was somebody who was a persecutor of Christians. He said, if only in this life we have hope, we are to be pity of all men the most pitiable. So, so his attitude was that I believe this, it's true, it's fact, there's evidence behind it. The evidence is eyewitness accounts. The evidence is the fulfillment of prophecies. So it's it's not it, his his faith is based on a logical foundation and evidence. So we have two possibilities here. Either Christ rose from the dead or he did not. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then Jesus was a false prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses explains that if somebody says, I'm speaking on behalf of God, and what they say doesn't come to pass, this man is a false teacher, have nothing to do with him. And it also goes on to say that false, false prophets should be stoned. So he says, either if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, they're false teachers. Jesus was a liar. He was a false prophet. He wasn't a good man. He wasn't a good teacher. He was a false teacher. He was a liar. He was a false prophet because he said he was going to raise from the dead. Paul also would be a false witness because he said he saw him raised from the dead. So that's if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then all the people who said he didn't rise from the dead, and that would include Muhammad. I I was living in Albania. I read the Quran, and Muhammad says very clearly in the Quran, he says, it only appeared that Jesus died on the cross. He didn't really die on the cross. This is 600 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Muhammad said didn't really happen. And obviously, it didn't rise from the dead either. So Muhammad says that, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the, he's the one prophesied about among the Jews, but he didn't die on the cross. He didn't rise from the dead. So it's, if, if, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then Muhammad is a false prophet. So... Now, to a lot of people, that sounds really bigoted, intolerant. It sounds like religious arrogance. I'm just saying if 
I'm just, this is just making a logical statement. Either it happened or it didn't. If it didn't happen, Paul says we're false prophets. And I'm saying that's exactly right. Logically, that's correct. If it, if, if it did happen, then there are other people who are false prophets. So I think the fear of intolerance, the fear of intolerance and bigotry has caused people to close their eyes. Satan has blinded people to close their eyes to the fact that something is either true or it's not true. Simple as that. You have to use the basic principles of truth that we use in every other area of life when it comes to spiritual truth and moral truth and uh, not give in to the, the modern, uh, the modern uh, blight of relativism. So there are two, two forms of, of, of evidence that Paul gives for the resurrection. The first one is eyewitness account. So I want to go back to Paul... In Acts chapter 9, Paul had an encounter with Jesus after the resurrection, but let's I want to go back to the Apostle John, who actually was an eyewitness, and read what he wrote and why he wrote it first. John chapter 19. Now, the first thing you need to understand, appreciate, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I was I was reading a book recently on the resurrection of Jesus. When it, we went through all the different theories about, well, what if, what if it was this? What was that? You know, maybe he just looked like he was dead, or maybe they went to the wrong tomb, or maybe all these logically laying out all the different possibilities of different things that could happen. And if you if you're going to believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, you have to believe he's dead in the first place. So let's let's we better, we better back up in John chapter 19. Starting at verse 17. This was a gospel of John written by the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness of these things. <clears throat> John chapter 19, verse 17. I'm going to read a long passage, but this is this is really uh, you can't do any better than listening to an eyewitness giving an account of what happened. John chapter 17. I'm sorry, John chapter 19, starting in verse. 17. And he bearing his cross went out to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but he said I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were about to be accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and they might be taken away. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. He who had seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture shall be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierced. <clears throat> After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who had first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to him, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out with the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down looked in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchiefs that had been round his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head of the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She supposed him to be the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will uh, take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, the first day of the week when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the prints of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, Thomas said to them, Thomas with them, Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, one detail is mentioned in the other Gospels is that after Jesus was put in, this, in the tomb and a large stone was rolled over that, that the Jews insisted that a guard be placed around the tomb so that no one could steal the body. So, so they uh, placed the guard around the tomb and then the angel showed up. That's and right. Was like afraid. That's right. That's right. So, uh, and each of the Gospels talk about certain aspects of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So Jesus was killed. He's clearly dead. He's put in the tomb. Stone rolled over the front. And the other Gospel accounts, a guard was placed at the tomb. And then on the morning of the third day, on Sunday, he is resurrected. The body is gone. The cloths are still in the tomb. He is physically resurrected, bodily resurrected now from the dead. And we get the other people, the Egyptians, blaming the Christians. And, and, the, and the Jews were blaming the Christians for stealing the body. So Adam's, Adam is, is, is right on that. And the apostles had a hard time believing it. And Thomas, one of the 12, says, even after the other 10 tell him that he's they've seen him risen from the dead, he says, I don't believe it. In fact, I wouldn't believe it even if I saw it. He said, I would need to stick my hands into the the into his, his side. I want to make sure it's not a ghost. It's not it's not something a product of my imagination. It's not somebody else. It really is him. It's the same person that he's bodily raised from the dead. So the first evidence here is the evidence of the eyewitness accounts. At the time that Paul's writing first Corinthians he said there are five hundred people still there who had seen Jesus after he was resurrected. But this is John's account of seeing him dead, buried, and resurrected. The second account is Paul seeing him. That's right. Paul saw him later. So Paul talks about uh, himself seeing him, about many people seeing him. He's dead, buried, resurrected. This actually happened. And then the other example in Acts chapter 2. Is when Paul was Solomon and actually saw him on the road. Well, that was in Acts chapter 9. That's the right book. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, where Peter, who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, 
talks about the other evidence for the resurrection, which is the fulfilled prophecies. And there he quotes from Psalm 16. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested uh, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You've taken by lawless hands and have crucified, put to death, whom God raised, having loosed the plans, the pains of death, because it was not possible that he could be held by it. For David says concerning him, and this is a direct quotation from Psalm 16, which you can check out on your own. <clears throat> David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life and will make me full of the joy of your presence. So this is Peter's quoting from uh, Psalm 16 where David says, my flesh will rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter goes on to explain this in verse 29. Medrim, brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter is explaining that in Psalm 16, David, that was written a thousand years before the time of Christ, where David said, you will not allow, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let your Holy One to see corruption. Well, David was dead, was buried. His body was rotted in the tomb. He'd been dead for a thousand years. So Peter's saying, obviously, this isn't referring to David. This is referring to the seed of David, the offspring of David the Christ, the one who was prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that, that the seed of David would be on the eternal throne forever. Yeah, Mary. Two questions. Curious. So therefore, when we go to heaven eventually, yes. eventually, we won't see David? Or Well, no, 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 no. He, he's just saying this is a prophecy. It's a good question. When we go to heaven, will we see David? David Moses, Abraham. Uh, well, I, I, I would assume that we would, that all of the righteous will be gathered there together. It's just that David, the prophecy of David said, you will not allow my body to see corruption. David's body did see corruption. So Peter's making the point. What's that? He killed a friend with the woman and that was his corruption. Well, yeah, he, he, David, David had spiritual corruption when he sinned with Bathsheba. But he also, after he died and was buried, he had physical corruption. So Peter has explained this prophecy in Psalm 16, a thousand years before Christ, could not have applied to David. 
it referred to the offspring of David, that he would be raised from the dead. Paul Paul talks touches the same thing in Acts chapter 13. So I'll close with the, the reaction that the people had. You have the eyewitnesses, you have the fulfillment of the prophecy of David. And as the people on the day of Pentecost hear this, Peter concludes, Now therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and about 3,000 souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So, um, this is this is the this is the foundation of the Christian faith. Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the third day, and the faith is based on eyewitness accounts like the Apostle John. It's based on the fulfillment of prophecies, as Peter pointed out in this example from from the prophecy of David in Psalm 16. And Jesus talked about it significantly beforehand. He said this was the one sign that would be given, the physical resurrection of the Messiah. And the people heard that. The response was they were cut to the heart, and they said, what do we need to do? He said, repent, turn away from your sins, and be baptized, to be, to be born again of water and the Spirit, to, to die to their old way of life, to be spiritually reborn, to turn, turn themselves into God. And uh, that was the beginning of the, um, of the church on the day of Pentecost. So uh, just uh, it, it, since this is Easter, when we were in Albania, they had, uh, uh, there was a tradition there in Easter that the greeting on Easter morning, maybe Allison remembers this, is they would say, he is risen. And the response when someone said that to you and it would be, he is risen indeed. Mm-hmm. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen.